Well, good morning. I am so excited to continue in this series that we've been in called Playlist. In fact, we're going to bring that series to a close today with the 77th Psalm. Over the past five weeks, we've been in this series called Playlist, and we've been taking a fresh look, a fresh look at some of the 150 songs contained in the book of Psalms. We've set out to take a deeper look at some familiar and some less familiar chapters. So far, we've spent time looking at Psalm chapter 1, 86, 23, 35, and last week, 102. And today we're going to look at one of probably the least familiar passages in the book of Psalms. Uh, Today we're going to focus on Psalm 77. But before we do, I want to back up and look at how the book of Psalm came together. As I said, there's 150 different songs, poems would probably be a better description in this book, but what's most interesting is how they were compiled. The 150 individual psalms were written by lots of different people, including David and Solomon and Moses and even people we don't even know. These poems were written across a period of a thousand years of history of the nation of Israel. And if you spend any time in the Old Testament, you know that the nation of Israel has this sort of love-hate relationship with God. There's this constant back and forth. God would give them what they needed, they would complain about it, and then God would let them wander around for a while. And at some point, shortly after the Israelites were set free from their captivity, they started to collect these poems, this oral history of their existence, into a book. And I know that there were more than 150 of them that surfaced, so these were, in fact, the top, the best, the ones that resonated most, the ones that made most sense to be included in a book of history. They were, in fact, the playlist of the day. And each one of them is here for a reason. Each one of them contains a lesson not to be forgotten. These poems contain the best and the worst of times. They tell the honest, real, and often painful story of the existence of the nation of Israel. Eugene Peterson, a theologian, a scholar, a teacher, and the translator of the message version of the Bible, describes the Psalms as cussing without the cussing. I don't know if that's an accurate description of all of them, but it certainly is an accurate description of the one we're going to look at today. Eventually, the newly freed nation of Israel set these poems to music, and and they became songs used in the newly built temple. These poems, now songs, have a purpose. They're not just meant for hospital rooms and greeting cards and interesting Instagram posts. They are meant to connect humanity at the most human level with the great God. They are meant to connect people in significant ways. Of the 150 poems in this book, 67 of them are songs of lament. We tend to think of lament or psalms of lament as being about grief or loss, but that's kind of a thin description of the idea of lament. The definition of lament can be most accurately described as an address to God, a complaint, a request, 
and an expression of trust. Well, Psalm 77 fits that definition incredibly well. It moves through all four of those components. It is, in fact, an address to God. It is a complaint. It's followed by a request, and it ends in a place of trust. It's 20 verses, so it's short. So I'm going to read it. So if you'd like to follow along, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you, or if you brought your own Bible, or the words will be on the screen. Verse 1, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out my untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remember you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Will his unfailing love vanish forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? When I thought, then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led to the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Father, as we come before you this morning, as we study your work in our lives, would you remind us, remind us of the countless ways that you have showed up for each of us. In your name we pray. Amen. So the, this song is 20 verses long, and it's 50% complaining and 50% working it out. But you can see a progression of thought through these 20 verses. The first two verses, we see someone in distress crying out to God. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out my untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. This is a person sitting on the edge of his bed, unable to sleep, crying out for God to be present, and not being comforted. This is one of those moments, as had been experienced by the nation of Israel throughout time, where God was silent. And the writer of this psalm wanted nothing more than for God to express something to him. The writer is pleading for God to reveal himself in this moment. He's doing everything he knows how to do 
but it wasn't working. Nothing he did brings comfort. In fact, the writer goes to the one thing that has always worked in the past. The writer goes deep into his memory to remember what it was like when he heard from God, to remember what it was like when God was near. And even that doesn't work. In fact, it only makes it worse. Verse 3 says, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I thought about you, and it made it worse. I meditated, I prayed, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. You wouldn't let me sleep. I had no words. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. I remembered you, and I groaned. The writer is expressing what it was like. He's trying to remember what it was like to be with God, to hear from God. And he is grieving the loss of that even more. But in the latter half of verse 6, the writer turns a corner. He takes a a different tack. From the second half of verse 6 through the end of verse 9, the writer begins to question God. We see a series of very personal and very pointed questions. The writer is questioning, in these six questions, he is questioning everything. He is questioning everything he's ever known, everything he's ever learned. He is questioning even the very existence of God. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Eugene Peterson describes it in the message a little bit differently. Will the Lord walk off and leave us for good? Will he never smile again? Is his love worn threadbare? Has his salvation promise burned out? Has God forgotten his manners? Has he angrily stalked off and left us? Just my luck, I said. The high God goes out of business just the moment I need him. I did a lot of research on this particular psalm, and everywhere I looked, I saw references to people who are depressed. I saw references of this passage being used to help somebody in a place of depression come out. It's as if the only reason that one would question God is when they're in a state of depression. But that is not how I read this passage. Remember, every one of these is here for a reason. And I don't see a man or a woman who's depressed. I see a person who is doubting the existence of God. This psalm and the other psalms like it, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Lamentations, the book of Job, all of these books are here for a purpose, and they're here to teach us something, which is that it is okay to doubt. It is okay to wrestle with God, that God is big enough, strong enough and capable enough to handle your doubts. But we have been conditioned, we've been taught to see that what the writer is going through is something bad. We've been taught and conditioned to believe that our own doubts are something to be avoided. It's not good to doubt. We don't see the doubting and the questioning as something positive and even maybe necessary. 
I think that's because we have this tendency to see our journey with God in this linear fashion. That the key to growth is to know more, is to learn more. That we have to understand the Bible better. We have to be able to explain God through our understanding of Scripture. To pursue a greater certainty around the character of God. We strive for more knowledge and a deeper understanding. We would never think to doubt the Bible. We've been taught since we were kids that we need to have a solid hermeneutic, a solid understanding of Scripture, and that will make everything better. Let's be honest. There's lots of stuff in this book that are, it's quite frankly very difficult to believe. There is stuff in here that is quite difficult to believe. And we have, historically, a couple of options. We can ignore that and just let that doubt live inside us, or we can try to get smarter. And my argument this morning is neither of those things are effective or, or useful. Because our relationship with God, and don't miss this, our relationship with God has never been and will never be about how much we know. It has always been and it will always be about how much we trust Every one of these poems is here for a reason. Poems of lament are here to remind us that it's okay. It's okay to doubt. And even it's okay to disbelieve. They are here to give us permission to doubt, permission to question God, and I go so far as to say permission to at times not believe. Psalm 77 and many others like it exist to give us permission to wrestle with it all. Not just the confusing parts, all of it, even the very existence of God. But in the church today, and primarily the Western church, we are all about certainty and knowing. But these two things were never to be the goal. Doubt and disbelief are a necessary part of being a Christian. We have grown to trust our knowledge more than we trust God. Paul Tillich, a Christian philosopher and theologian, wrote a book a number of years ago called Dynamics of Faith. And in his book, he wrote this line, Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's an element of it. Others have put it this way, The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. We've come to trust our certainty of this book more than our experiences with God. But then the ver in verse 10, the writer turns a corner. And he starts to break through the doubt to a place of remembrance. Verse 10, Then I thought, to, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out His right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all of your works and meditate on all of your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. He's remembering something. What's different about these memories than the memories that were unsatisfying in the beginning of the chapter? 
Well, here he's taking the focus off of his, per, his current condition and he's reflecting on the ways in which God has shown up historically for his people. He's taking it off of himself and he's putting it onto the common memory of the nation of Israel. The writer is remembering the ways that God showed up, the very real, the very tangible experiences with God. The ways that God provided food, the ways God provided a place to sleep, the ways he provided a relative safety during dangerous times. Real life experiences with God. This is what brings him out of this place of doubt, disbelief, and despair. As the writer remembers more and more of the real experiences witnessed by the nation of Israel, the doubts clear up and God comes near. We have this horrible tendency in our culture to ignore or distrust our own experiences with God, right? Because we want to rely on our knowledge. We discount our experiences with God. I tell you that without those experiences, without understanding and remembering and celebrating the experiences, the times in which God showed up for us, what do we have left? The only thing we have left at that point is more knowledge. And I don't believe, and I think Scripture would make the argument, that more knowledge is not what's going to pull you out. It is a remembrance of the ways in which God has shown up for you. That's what pulls this writer out of the tailspin, and that is what has pulled me out of the tailspins in my life. Look at where these remembrances take the writer in verse 15. The writer takes us all the way back to Exodus chapter 14. Remember, these poems are a record of a thousand years of history. And in this verse, we are transported to maybe the most famous story in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel is in captivity, and Moses has led their escape. They're on the run. The Pharaoh is in hot pursuit. And God tells them to camp out in all of these weird places so that the army would think that they're insane. And the story hits an apex when the nation is trapped between the sea and the approaching army. And again, they cry out to God, this is your plan? This is where you've brought us? And it's at that moment, in the moment of doubt and questioning, that Charlton Heston raises his hand To the sea. No, the Bible actually paints a slightly different picture than that. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and and on their left. And what I think where Scripture takes a different turn than the movie is that I imagine Moses slowly and cautiously raising his hand to the sea and asking himself these questions. Is this going to work? Am I going to look like a crazy person? Are we all going to die? Is this really God? And then his mind, Moses' mind, races through the countless ways God showed up for him over the years. He sees the protection over him as a child. 
He sees the miraculous ways God literally spoke to him. He remembers the bread showing up every day. And his doubts in that moment submit to his experiences, which led him to trust and ultimately surrender to what God would have him do. And in that moment, he raises his hand, the sea parts, and the entire nation for several days walked on dry land to to safety. That's what this psalmist is remembering when he writes in verse 16, the water saw you, God, the water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. Your earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, through, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The writer is remembering the life-saving, redemptive power of God. The power of God to save. Do you see the progression of thought in this 77th Psalm? Do you see where the writer begins and where the writer ends? He begins in a place of tremendous doubt and disbelief that yields to his experiences which produces trust and surrender. Psalm 77 exists so that you and I have a place to go with our doubts and with our disbelief. I've been a pastor for a long time. I've been a Christian for a long time. And at 47 years of age, I stand before you and I tell you that I have doubts. You cannot look at this world and not have doubts. You, can't, you cannot read this, this book and not have some doubts. And what I want you to hear this morning is that is okay. That part of our spiritual journey, a necessary part of our spiritual journey, is to doubt, and even at times disbelieve, because it's the wrestling with God that produces growth in our lives. It's the wrestling with God that takes us out of a place of despair and into a place of trust, surrender, and hope. We must wrestle with him. We must go through periods of questioning and disbelief. It shouldn't be a thing of your childhood. It shouldn't be a sign of immaturity. It shouldn't be a thing that you haven't done in a long time. You should, even today, whether you've been a Christian for an hour or for 60 years, you should still have moments where you go, really? Really, God? Because that produces trust. The goal, the goal of being a follower of Jesus is not knowing more. It's trusting more. When we get to a place of trusting, when we get to this place of trusting, we get there through, the, through doubting, through testing, through wrestling. For us to be effective followers of Jesus and for the church to be effective at solving the world's greatest problems we need trust and ultimately surrender. So here's what I want you to take away from Psalm chapter 77. Doubt and disbelief are necessary for our growth and essential for discipleship. It's okay to question God. It's okay to question the Bible. 
There are some hard things in this book to believe, but as you wrestle and as you question, you've got to listen. You've got to listen for God's answers. And keep your eyes open for the moments, the subtle and often big moments where God shows up. The second thing I want you to take away from this is that experience and memories lead us back to the redemptive power of God. From Genesis through Revelation, God is about the business of making old things new. The Old Testament and the New Testament, both of them, God, the immutability of God is about making old things new. And every experience that you have with God is an opportunity to learn that truth even more. So we need to remember those moments. We need to read the Bible through the filter of our own experiences with God. The entire New Testament is filled with examples of God showing up in the life of Jesus for you. Through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, God showed up for you. But even to this day, there are moments every day where if your eyes are attuned and your ears are open, you will hear God and see God show up for you. And you need to write those things down. You need to remember them. Because it's not about knowing. It's about trusting. And that trust comes from remembering the moments that God showed up for you. So doubt and disbelief, experience and memories, and finally trust and surrender. Trust and surrender are God's ultimate desire for every one of us. The goal is not knowing more, it's trusting more. And trust results in surrender. And that is what God wants for your life. That's what God wants for my life. Surrender. The ultimate result of discipleship. My number one goal as a pastor, as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, is to let go of my own understanding and lean on his and his alone. This requires trust and surrender. So my challenge to you this morning as we move to a time of communion my challenge to you is this, doubt, it's okay. The way out of that is to remember. The product of that is trust. And the ultimate goal is surrender. And so as we move into a time of communion, I would like for you to take some moments, just between you and God, to remember. Remember the moments where God has showed up for you. For some, you don't have to go very far, right? For some, maybe that was this weekend. For others in this room, you may have to go a little deeper because your journey with God has been a little bit more complex. But I want you to take a moment and dig deep, quiet your heart, quiet your mind, quiet your soul, and remember the moment. Remember the moment that God showed up for you. Maybe it's Jesus on the cross. Maybe it's something that happened yesterday. Maybe it was something someone said to you as a child. Find it. Do the work in this moment to find it. And then as you do, in your own time, I want you to get up, make your way to one of the four communion stations in the room, and I want you to take the bread, and I want you to gently dip it into the juice. If 
you drop it, don't go fishing for it. Get another one. But I want you to take a moment as you're dipping that bread into the juice and you're taking those elements together to remember, to trust, to surrender. Father, as we do this this morning, will you show us, will you reveal to us these things? Will you make it easy for our hearts and our minds to remember? It's embarrassing that we have to ask for that, but it's true. Will you remind us of those things? And in your time, you get up, you take communion, and then we'll finish. I want to thank you. This wasn't, um, this wasn't an easy message for me to write. Um, it's reflective of my own journey. It's a bit of vulnerability in it. It wasn't as funny as I normally am. But I want to thank you because I want everyone to experience the freedom that comes from knowing that God is bigger than your doubts and that he's given you everyday experiences that you can trust, that you can know that he's there, that he's with you, that he's redeeming you. I want you to have that freedom. I grew up in a tradition where doubt was bad, where questioning the Bible was unspeakable, unheard of. I don't want my kids to grow up that way. I don't want you to have that experience. God's bigger than your doubts. So Father, as we leave this place today, will you remind us of that truth? Would you remind us of the things that we can trust on, those experiences that you have given us with you? those ways that you show up for us each and every day. Will you use those, leverage those memories to build into us a trust that would ultimately allow our lives to be surrendered to your will, to your understanding, that we would rely not on our own, that we would rely on yours. Would you give us that? We'll give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. It's in your name that we pray.